All right, welcome. January 18th edition of the Suspended Indefinitely podcast. I'm your host, Justin Reschke, normally joined here by Alex Gratis and Ryan Noonan um, on a weekly basis. Uh, Alex was unfortunately feeling under the weather. Uh, it's certainly that time of year. Um, I know he's also uh, very busy putting in longer hours at work as uh, he and I prepare for our uh, California Winter League baseball season uh, with players reporting uh, actually just on, on Monday, uh, so in five days coming up here. So a lot going on there. We need Alex healthy and ready to go. So uh, he's he's taking this week off. Um, Ryan Noonan was recently fired into the sun. Uh, so once he returns uh, from that, uh, he'll be back with us hopefully next week. Um, but a lot to talk about in the meantime here. Wild NFL wild card weekend uh, featuring some great games. At least we got into Monday night, which was awful but of course it was um but uh otherwise very exciting football very exciting games um definitely going to touch on uh, on all those games and some other storylines from uh the national football league uh and also carlos correa is finally a minnesota twin after all of this after 300 plus million dollar offers uh from the san francisco giants and then from the uh, new york mets uh that were agreed to and then nullified due to failed physicals in both scenarios. Um, there's a new twist to that story. So we'll get into that along with uh, some other talking points as Major League Baseball season is uh, starting to ramp up a little bit. Uh, free agency has cooled down with the Correa signing, and, and we're about a month or so away from pitchers and catchers uh, reporting to spring training. Um, but yeah, first, lots to talk about after an awesome NFL wildcard weekend. I, of course, uh, on Saturday was a shitty sports fan and went skiing, but made it back, caught all the highlights, um, caught uh, caught most of the second half, actually, of the Niners and Seahawks game, caught all, all of these Chargers uh, and Jaguars game. Unfortunately, um, should have gone to bed after the first half and woke up a happy fan, but either way. Um, and then uh, Sunday's action, of course, but... I want to start um, with the first game of the weekend. Uh, Niners and Seahawks was a pretty incredible contest. It was kind of Jekyll and Hyde. First half, um, kind of the game I think that we all expected. Low score, not not a whole lot going on um, at halftime. Uh, it's seventeen to sixteen with the Seahawks actually ahead of San Francisco. Uh, like I said, I think that you know we all expected a pretty uh, defensive, you know, focused contest, which is certainly what we got through the first half. Um, and then in the second half for Seattle, uh, the wheels absolutely came off with the 49ers putting up 18 points in the fourth quarter alone uh, to go along with the touchdown in the third. So uh, final score, 41 to 23 in that one. But um, man, this dude, Brock Purdy, just keeps finding ways to win. Uh, probably, you know, maybe the hottest quarterback right now in the NFL, at least buzz-wise. Um you look at his line from this game, 18 for 30, 332 yards, though. So he's making the absolute most um, on those 18 completions. Passed for three touchdowns, uh, rushed for an additional touchdown. Um, not many yards uh, on the ground, just, just 16 yards on the ground, but of course, uh, taking one of the house. So, um, yeah, Brock Purdy. When you look at what he's done in the postseason compared to what Jimmy Garoppolo has done, um, it's, you know, Brock Purdy, very small sample size, obviously, but Brock Purdy has as many touchdowns uh, in the postseason 
in one game as Jimmy Garoppolo has, uh, I, I believe it was in four games, um, and that's four. So there's rumors already starting to fly around that uh, Jimmy Garoppolo could actually be healthy. Um, maybe, probably not for the divisional round, but maybe uh, if the 49ers advance to the NFC Championship, um, he would come back as a QB2 behind Brock Purdy, and rightfully so, I think, at this point. Not a bad option for San Francisco to have with the way that uh, their quarterback, uh, not necessarily quarterback play, but quarterback situation has evolved this season with uh, with injuries. Um, I'm sure that they'll be happy to get a veteran presence like Garoppolo back uh, behind Brock Purdy. And just the uh, type of you know vibe that a veteran player like that brings in practice, um, I think can only help Brock Purdy at this point, now that Garoppolo, you know, really knows that uh, that at least for the rest of this season, through this postseason, uh, QB1 on that depth chart is going to be Brock Purdy. So um, something to watch there. And then, of course, going into next season, there's reports that NFL teams are asking about Trey Lance uh, via trade. There's reports that the Niners haven't ruled out bringing Garoppolo back and perhaps, you know, having a three-headed monster. We've seen this out at San Francisco before, that they're not afraid to go into camp, you know, kind of with a lame duck quarterback. We saw it last year with the team bringing back Jimmy Garoppolo and uh, Garoppolo and Trey Lance battling in um, in training camp for, uh, for that starter's role. Um, but then, of course, injuries occur. You're glad that you have Jimmy Garoppolo. Uh, Jimmy G certainly did a lot to get the 49ers to this point and to the postseason, and Brock Purdy picks it up from here. Um, cheap comparison. I'm a Buckeye. So it kind of reminds me of, um, I think it was 2014 when JT Barrett goes down. Um, and then you end up with, um, his backup going down. And then finally Cardale Jones ends up, uh, winning the national championship for the Buckeyes. Um, that's kind of the situation that we have here, uh, with San Francisco on your third string quarterback. And he's absolutely lighting it up in the postseason. Um, Another dude that lit it up for San Francisco, Christian McCaffrey, 15 carries, 119 yards on the ground. That's an average of 7.9, call it eight yards a carry, folks. Um, that's that's impressive. Didn't get in the end zone in this one, but he didn't have to because Brock Purdy was doing it through the air. Uh, but that's that's pretty impressive to do um, for Christian McCaffrey. Uh, Debo Samuel's role, this one surprised me. Um, only three carries. We've seen him as more of a gadget player out of the backfield, but he's certainly more than capable of, of running the rock when he needs to. Only three carries, 32 yards, however, 10.7 average uh, for Debo running it. And, of course, six receptions for 133 yards uh, and a, a touchdown as well. So huge game for Debo Samuel. Um, I would have thought that you know maybe they would have given him some more love uh, and some more carries out of the backfield. But either way, whatever Kyle Shanahan is doing with that offense, it is certainly working. So don't change anything now. Um, and Brock Purdy, I mean, you can't say enough about the guy definitely in his comfort zone. Um, on the Seattle side of things, man, I mean, that that 49er defense is absolutely solid. And I wasn't really sure what we were going to get out of Seattle's offense. It's not really a potent offense, um, although I must say that Geno Smith's play this year has been stellar. Uh, replacing Russell Wilson, uh, who was a legend in Seattle, obviously not so great for Denver this year, but still, you you look at Wilson's track record and you're like, wow, you know that's really a difficult skill set to replace. But I think Geno Smith has certainly exceeded everybody's expectations um, when it comes, you know, to his performance this season. Um, he's 
ultra talented. He's ultra athletic and playing in Pete Carroll's system. I mean, I think that we touched on it last week. It's a perfect combination. Uh, 25 for 35. Still, you know, not a not a bad performance, honestly. Um, out of Geno Smith, threw for two touchdowns, did have one interception, but who isn't throwing interceptions against the 49ers in that defense um, these days? So, but that's that's kind of where it stops. Uh, their rushing game with uh, Kenneth Walker, only 63 yards on the ground. Uh, this game was all about DK Metcalf through the air. 10 receptions, 136 yards, uh, had both touchdowns, uh, through the air for Seattle. Um, so, I mean, it's it's really just if you can shut down DK Metcalf with the Niners, which the Niners did in the second half, that's their whole offense. Obviously, big physical receiver, uh, fast as hell, hard to, you know, hard to match up against that. But as soon as that Niners offense got eyes on the Seattle scheme in the first half and said, okay, you know, if we take away DK Metcalf, then uh, we can really shut down that Seahawk offense. And that's exactly what happened. So, uh, 49ers advance, um, and rightfully so. I think that they're probably the best team in football right now. I'm going to say it. The way that Brock Purdy's playing, he doesn't even have to be elite when you have names like Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk and George Kittle uh, on that offense as well. Um, as long as he plays average, it doesn't make mistakes, uh, and again, no no interceptions in this one. Only got sacked one time. That's not making mistakes. Then I I honestly like the 49ers to come out of the NFC um, as the NFC champions and head to the Super Bowl. Um, just the way that 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 defense you know primarily is playing, and they've obviously got you know more than enough offense to go along with it. Uh, obviously, some other you know powerhouse teams, but mostly on the AFC side of things. You look at the Bills. You look at the Bengals. Um, it's. I think it's kind of unfortunate that they're matching up in the divisional round because it would have been uh, fun to see them, you know, in the NFC or rather the AFC Championship. But at least we get that matchup in the playoffs. Um, we get a rematch after the Monday night game was suspended uh, because of the Demar Hamlin situation. And great to hear that he's doing well and is back at Buffalo's facility. By the way, um, but that's a matchup that I think everybody wanted to see and. To have a true Super Bowl champion um, or a true Super Bowl contender that wins the AFC and heads to the Super Bowl, I think that uh, you know those two teams have to face each other at some point so that you can say, okay, the Bengals got through Buffalo, or okay, the Bills they got through the Bengals. So that is um, that's going to be one to watch, obviously coming up. But um, moving on, I don't even want to move on to Saturday. I had a great day. I skied all day. Got one of the first chairlifts uh, up in the morning. It was not the fiasco that I had uh, the uh, previous weekend, which was the New Year. Let's see. Yeah, it was the weekend after New Year, so of course it was going to be a shit show. Didn't get on a chairlift until damn near noon that day. When I left my house, my ETA on the GPS was 8.37 a.m. in the lot. Didn't even get up to... Uh, to Big Bear proper, the city didn't really pull into the city until about 9:45, and didn't get into a parking lot for another hour from there at 10:45. The shuttle line was a mess. The lift lines were 20 minutes long. It was the worst day that I've ever had skiing. Lamp agrees. And man, this was much better on the hill, on a lift by 8:40. 
Um, skied all day, started snowing a little bit early in the afternoon to refresh some of those runs that had been a little bit skied out. Um, it was crowded, but it was, you know, it wasn't bad at all. Um, but anyway, that's what I was doing. Headed back down the hill about three o'clock, three fifteen, so I could get home in time for that chargers game. And in the first half, you fire up some drinks, you get, you know, some beer going, sipping on a little bit of uh, coffee and Bailey's at the end of the day to warm you back up. And uh, to get that energy back up, you know, for uh, for what I was hoping was going to be a long night of partying and celebrating a Chargers playoff win. But uh, no, of course not. Um, that's not what happened at all. So getting into that one, watching the first half of this game, I mean, it was like I was asking myself, who put TCU in the teal jerseys? Because that's what Jacksonville looked like. They come out, they turn it over twice. Um, Asante Samuel Jr. absolutely goes off with three interceptions um, I think all of them were even in the first quarter, absolutely insane performance from him. And just the way that the defense was playing, uh, they had Trevor Lawrence rattled, even though he was at home, they were pressuring Trevor Lawrence. They were hitting Trevor Lawrence. They were getting in his face. Um, and Asante Samuel jr. Was just playing all over the field. Uh, absolutely legendary performance from him. And unfortunately it's the type of performance that, you know, Sure, it's legendary, but it's not really going to be talked about much going forward because the Chargers didn't win the fucking game. You have to win the fucking game if we're going to keep talking about legendary performances. And had the Chargers held on and won, I mean, we'd be talking about Asante Samuel Jr. and three interceptions in the first half um, as one of the most prolific uh, performances by a corner um, in NFL postseason history. But instead, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the second half performance um, that Trevor Lawrence had after throwing four interceptions in the first half because Drew Tranquil got one too uh, from the linebacker position. So four, four interceptions from Trevor Lawrence. Um, and he bounces back from that. I think that there were five turnovers uh, total as uh, Chris Claybrooks had a fumble um, that was lost as well. So five total turnovers. Chargers win the turnover game five to nothing, and they still go on to lose this game by one point. Second half of the game, that's what we're talking about. Three total points put up by the Chargers, a measly field goal in the third quarter. Uh, there was a field goal missed later on in the game that was, uh, you know, obviously played a crucial role in in a, uh, a, a one-point contest. Um, but I don't know what happened with – Los Angeles. I mean, you can point to, you know, a tremendous second half performance from Trevor Lawrence. You can point to Travis Etienne eating it up on the ground, 109 yards total for him. So this isn't a bad Jaguars team. They're obviously talented. Um, they can run the ball. They can throw the ball. They have Trevor Lawrence who can scramble. He can run it himself. He's a big physical quarterback. Uh, but really, you look at some key names on this team and particularly in the receiving game. And that's what did them in as soon as the chart or did the, did the chargers in rather, as soon as the Jaguars realized that all that they really kind of have to do is run it right at the Chargers defense. That's one of the worst in the league. at stopping the run and throw it to the opposite side of the field of wherever the hell Asante Samuel jr. Is all of a sudden they start scoring points. It had to have been the easiest, you know, flip of the playbook, uh, at halftime, because if you're Doug Peterson and if you're if you're that you know offense, it's like, what do you do? 
Well, yeah, if what's not working? Well, I mean, everything is not working. But let's start here. Don't throw it at Asante Samuel Jr. And let's run it right at the worst run defense in the league, at least, you know, certainly a bottom three run defense, um, depending on, you know, which metric you're, you're looking at. And that's exactly what they did. And these receiver names, they're not superstars. They're not a DK Metcalf, for example. Um, you know, you've got Evan Ingram, who at this point, he's kind of a journeyman, you know, had a, had a decent, you know, start to his career with the New York Giants, um, lands in Jacksonville on a, a, a very team-friendly contract, you know, for what it ended up being. Seven receptions in this one, 93 yards, one touchdown. Christian Kirk, another signing that was kind of, you know, of the journeyman type, somebody who doesn't really have that uh, that superstar quality to them, but is certainly still very useful. Eight receptions, 78 yards, one touchdown. Zay Jones, eight receptions, 74 yards, one touchdown. So you can see how they're spreading the ball around here. And I think it just took it took that disastrous first half. And I think it took Jacksonville coming out and thinking, you know, maybe, maybe not being able to live up to the moment and ultimately running into a Charger team that was so fired up and so passionate and had been playing so well, you know, down the stretch. Um, of course, the Chargers had the injury to Mike Williams that ultimately kept him out of this one. We'll get into that and that decision in a minute. But just talking about what happened on the field, the Chargers showed up ready to go. I mean, you just look at, at Justin Herbert, what he's capable of, and Austin Eckler, what he's capable of. Um, Gerald Everett had a chance to absolutely take this game over and pretty much did from the tight end position. Six receptions, 109 yards, and a touchdown for him. Uh, he was a weapon. And, you know, really, this was probably his biggest performance of the season. Um, I'd, I'd be willing to bet that without going back through 17 games. But, um, man, he was he was an, an awesome target for Justin Herbert. Keenan Allen as well. Uh, Josh Palmer had some big catches. Um, big body, you know, wide receiver there. Donald Parham Jr. finally healthy at the end of the season. He had four receptions. So this this Charger offense was getting it done um, in the first half. Obviously, turnovers played a huge role, but you've got to do something with those. You've got to convert. And at halftime, it was 27. Actually, it was 27 to nothing at, at one point. It was 27 to 7 at half. I sheepishly said oh, I can't wait to see how they're going to blow this one. And my prediction when the game started uh, just before kickoff was that the Chargers would blow an 18-point lead at half. They would miss two kicks. The play calling would be uh, suspect, to say the least, and they would they would choke away the game. And pretty much, I wasn't far off. I didn't think that they'd be capable of blowing a 27-0 lead or a 20-point lead at half. 18 is close. But... I said two missed kicks. Okay, it was one missed kick. That seems to be a theme for the Chargers. Um, at the time when it happened in the game, it was like, okay, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. It is a big deal. Any points that you leave on the field, potential points you leave on the field, especially in the playoffs in the NFL, it's it's a death sentence. And with the Jacksonville Jaguars offense, them playing at home, you knew it was just going to be a matter of time before they figured something out. And they figured something out very quickly in the third quarter. Um putting up 13 points to the Chargers three in that quarter. So yeah, that missed field goal ended up being, you know, could have cost them the game if things shake out differently. Um, Jaguars ended up with great field position uh, off of that drive. Um, and the Chargers ended up with no points and the Jaguars, you know, kept their momentum rolling in the right direction for them. Um, 
So, I mean, this was this was the best game of the weekend. It'll probably end up as one of the best games uh, of this postseason. And the, the choke job, let's call it what it is, the choke job by the Chargers, third biggest choke job in NFL postseason history, blowing a 27 uh, to nothing lead. So, yeah, I mean, what do you say after that? Well, Chargers got together as a team, Dean Spanos, the owner, and Tom Telesco, the general manager. Um, first of all, I mean, a, a lot of Chargers fans don't know how to feel about Dean Spanos. Um, he had that, you know, whole battle uh, with his sister over the team. Um, it was kind of a rocky relationship uh, re regarding the stadium situation in San Diego. And, you know, for years he was talking about moving the team out of the area entirely. And uh, now I think that he's done a great job navigating the stadium situation. Um, he gets a lease at SoFi Stadium that he really doesn't have to pay for in terms of, you know, the initial construction of it. Um, uh, Stan Kroenke, uh, who owns the Los Angeles Rams, paid for the stadium um, himself and all that the Chargers have to contribute is they have to hit some season ticket goals. Um, they have to contribute, you know, uh, some of the concessions revenue, I believe, and some of the ticket revenue um, on top of their their annual lease payment. But it ends up being a great situation. They're playing in the best stadium in football um, and really one of the best uh, sports venues in the world. <coughs> so, um, excuse me, but but yeah, that's, that's where they are. And after this season and the season that the Rams had, you know, the Chargers had the momentum in the LA market. There was buzz around Los Angeles about the Chargers. So they had everything going for them going into the playoffs. Um, and then, of course, they just stumble all over themselves. And, and here we are. But a big part of that was Brandon Staley opting to play the starters in that final Week 18 game that did not matter. By the time the Chargers kicked off, 125 uh, Pacific time, 425 in the East. They had already locked up the fifth seed. There was no, there was no possibility that they're moving up or down. Justin Herbert's in the game. Keenan Allen's in the game. Mike Williams in the game. Joey Bosa's in the game. Asante Samuel Jr.'s in the game. Drew Tranquil's in the game. Uh, Gerald Everett's in the game. Josh Palmer's in the game. I mean, you can just go on and on. Donald Parham Jr. is in the game. And outside of maybe Bosa, who needed some reps after missing the majority of the season, and maybe Donald Parham Jr. for the same reason. There's no reason to play guys like Justin Herbert. And I know what everyone says about Justin Herbert, that he's a gamer. He lives at the facility. If uh, if the team is told that they don't have to lift on Monday because they won on Sunday, Herbert's there anyway, and he's almost disappointed that you know the rest of the gang is around. But fuck. I mean, he's one of the most – He's easily a top five, if not a top three quarterback in the whole league. Um, he's had the rib injury earlier this season, and we saw how that affected his play week in and week out until he was fully recovered from that. I mean, okay, you know, maybe maybe put him in there, let him get his reps, let him feel it a little bit, and then in the second half, get him out of the game. It doesn't matter what the score is. The game doesn't matter. Um, and then certainly, guys like Keenan Allen – and Mike Williams, who are injury prone, like let's call it like it is. Keenan Allen misses three to six weeks at least every single season with a hamstring or a calf or an ankle or, or whatever it is. He is injury prone, and especially at this stage of his career 
when he's healthy, he's one of the best wide receivers in the game because you can you you can line him up anywhere. You can line him up in the slot. Um, you can line him up out wide. He's he's a weapon on third down. He's a weapon in the red zone all over the field. Um, in his route running, he's the best route runner in the NFL right now. His his detail and the separation that he gets right off the line is second to none. But he's injury prone. Mike Williams, kind of a different type of a receiver used in a very similar way to Keenan Allen. He's bigger. He's more physical. He's probably more your 50-50 ball guy. But on third down, there's nobody more reliable as a receiver for the Chargers than Mike Williams. That's their go-to. Put him in the slot, have him come across the middle, line him up outside, uh, throw a back shoulder, let him go up and get it. Red zone, same thing. Whatever the situation is, Mike Williams is an absolute weapon for that offense, and I think he's really become Justin Herbert's favorite favorite receiver, especially this year with Keenan Allen missing so much time. Those two guys are so vital to this offense. Elite wide receivers is all that Justin Herbert knows so far. He doesn't know playoff football in the NFL, so we need to do everything that we can to keep those guys healthy and keep them on the field and give Justin Herbert that comfort zone that he's used to going into his first playoff experience on the road. Brandon Staley made a decision that put all of that in jeopardy. And that was playing Mike Williams, uh, you know, certainly more than he had to. Mike Williams gets hurt, ends up with uh, with some fractures in his back. Um, this isn't just a little, you know, a little tender hamstring or a rolled ankle or something that you can tape up and go out and play. This is a fractured back. I mean, this is a pretty serious injury. You know, it's it's not displaced. It didn't require surgery or anything like that. It just requires, um, you know, some rehab. And Brandon Staley is saying all week, oh, you know, we expect Mike Williams to be a practice this week. Okay, well, he's out of practice. Okay, well, we expect Mike Williams to, be, to, to have a chance to play Saturday night. And we expect him to be a game-time decision. All of a sudden, Friday rolls around. He hasn't practiced all week. He hasn't really been doing much around the facility as – the reports that, that it come out and it comes out Friday that he's been ruled out for Saturday. So I just want to know, how does that process go down? How does something like that happen with a superstar wide receiver like Mike Williams? And is this Brandon Staley, you know, publicly in press conferences throughout the week, making comments, uh, you know, hopeful comments, trying to speak something into existence. Um, at that point, you know, his, his job was still very much on the line. Uh, Stephen A. Smith, you know, obviously, whether there was anything behind it or not, he simply floated the motion that, yeah, you know, there are still rumblings around the NFL that, that maybe Brandon Staley's job isn't safe unless they win this wild card game. And of course, they didn't. They should have. Um, so that brings us to, you know, uh, Monday. And I think it was actually Tuesday by the time that Brandon Staley met uh, with Chargers owner Dean Spanos and their general manager, Tom Telesco, and learned his fate. And Brandon Staley's fate is that he's going to be staying with the team. Um, this is this is interesting. You know, they they did make the decision to to you know collectively uh, to fire Joe Lombardi, who is the offensive coordinator. Um, if you look at where Justin Herbert has thrown the football this season, it's not very far north of twenty yards in any situation in the game. There's there's a lot of screens. Um, there's a lot of, you know, back shoulder throws. There's a lot of, uh, you know, RPO, um, quick little play action passes. It's it's not a very 
you know, West Coast type offense, even though it is because you're throwing the ball a lot. It's not because you're throwing it a lot to Austin Eckler out of the backfield or, you know, Keenan Allen, maybe six to eight yards uh, down the middle of the field for a completion, but not really a situation where, you know, you you have a guy like Keenan Allen who's certainly capable, um, but he's not put in a position because of the route that he's asked to run to be able to turn and run it upfield. They're not taking those deep shots um, that you typically see with an elite quarterback, uh, certainly that, you know, that Joe Burrow takes to Jamar Chase, for example, um, or Josh Allen takes to, you know, pretty much anybody in that Bills receiving core. Um, Patrick Mahomes certainly capable of that. We, we, we've seen it in Miami uh, with the addition of Tyreek Hill um, adding to the deep threat there. And I, all these teams that I just mentioned are playoff teams and they're good teams and they rely a lot on the deep ball. That's today's NFL. You have to have a deep threat in your playbook. And the Chargers do all over the field talent-wise, but in that playbook, there wasn't much drawn up all season long um, that you know that really took advantage of that. So that, I think, was evident in the second half against the Jaguars. You have, at one point, a 27-point lead. In the third quarter, coming out of halftime, you have a 20-point lead. There's some cushion there. Take some deep shots. Put this game away on the road. Dial up some big plays. Even if they don't hit, you might get a pass interference call. Or you're at least showing it that it's there, that those receivers can get downfield and find one-on-one coverage. Um, and Justin Herbert obviously can execute. So that was that was confusing. And it's been something that's been confusing with the Chargers offense all season long. So Joe Lombardi's showing the door. Um, I think that you know, we all knew that that was coming one way or another, but Brandon Staley stays. You have to ask yourself, could Brandon Staley have made this decision on Joe Lombardi earlier? I don't know. But when you look at what Brandon Staley can control and did control publicly, there were some questionable decisions to go for it on fourth down. Statistically, he still made the correct choice uh, like 68, 7 or 68% of the time to go forward on fourth down. Um, the Chargers, uh, they were not the most aggressive team on fourth down. They were actually the seventh most aggressive team, um, whereas last year they were the third most aggressive team in going forward on fourth down. So Brandon Saley did dial it back, whether that was a conscious decision or not, we'll never know, but he did dial it back and he seemed to make more calculated decisions, but still um, definitely got burned on some uh, earlier in the season and a lot of people you know that was a red flag for them um his his risk taking you know desire um to do that kind of stuff and maybe that's what we saw in week 18 with the decision to keep the starters in he said earlier in the week nope i'm not even going to consider it i'm going to play my starters it doesn't matter we're still playing for the fifth seed and that was kind of the kind of the caveat that he gave but ultimately he was saying no i'm going to play my starters so be ready and he did he stuck to his word but he didn't have to. And then here we are. You end up with Mike Williams uh, out um, in a game that you know looks like a blowout early on. But, man, it would have been nice to have Mike Williams uh, in the fourth quarter to, uh, to help put away the Jaguars um, in, in that one. So did it, did it cost the Chargers the season, that one decision to play Mike Williams versus sit him in Week 18? Uh, no, I'm not going to say that. I don't think it did. Um, Mike Williams doesn't play defense and the defense is ultimately what blew a 27 point lead. But still, it's just something that you have to consider when you're looking at the, the broader season 
that Brandon Staley had with the Los Angeles Chargers. But ultimately, he took him to the playoffs for the first time since 2016. There was a lot of optimism toward the end of the season about the way that the defense was playing. He's a defensive guy, um, formerly Sean McVay's defensive coordinator, so he knows his defense. And this is one of the best defenses in the league. You look at what the defensive line is able to do against the pass, not against the run. We discussed that, but against the pass. And what they're able to do getting to the quarterback um, and what they're able to do downfield against the elite wide receivers, uh, absolutely shutting them down. Derwin James, one of the best, not only safeties in the league, but one of the best overall defensive players in the league. And by the time he's done, he'll be one of the best that the league has ever seen, uh, especially at the safety position. Asante Samuel Jr., second round draft pick out of Florida State, comes in and he's really coming into his own. This is a team that went out and signed J.C. Jackson uh, after he left New England. And he started the season with the team, didn't play well, got injured, out for the season, and everybody is saying, oh, shit, you know, there goes our corners. There go our, goes our, our corner depth. J.C. Jackson in free agency was the top corner available. And by a lot of metrics and in a lot of people's opinions, he was the best corner in the league. Um, he goes down and Asante Samuel Jr. just steps right up. Um, very talented, obviously great pedigree there with, uh, with Asante's father, uh, also playing for very, very long in the NFL, um, tremendous defensive back in his own right. So, uh, when that second round pick was made, I was like, yes, you know, this is, this is a guy who can really help solidify, uh, that, that cornerback room. And he certainly has, and he stepped up and now, you know, I think everybody forgot about J.C. Jackson um, toward the end of the season and uh, and certainly in the first quarter of this game against the Jags. But Chargers are out. You know, the result is the same as it was um, in 2016, a first-round exit. So Brandon Staley keeps his job. We'll see what happens uh, with the offensive coordinator uh, position. Um, I do want to wrap up this, this, this Chargers uh, – I was going to call it a segment, but it's more of a rant with this. Brandon Staley was asked if he wants to install more of a Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, true kind of West Coast offense type of offense. And his uh, – here, I'm actually just going to find it because I thought it was interesting. Basically, what he was saying is that he when, – when, when he thinks of, of offense after working under Sean McVay, he thinks of – the uh, the West Coast offense, the air it out offense. Um, and that quote was was interesting. So here it is. I think there is a different level that we need to play out offensively, particularly at the line of scrimmage and the run game and having the marriage of the run and the pass. So I'm trying to find um, that was uh, that was discussing why they moved on from Joe Lombardi. So that was the reasoning for firing him, um, having the marriage of the run in the past. Obviously, saying that you know maybe they relied too much on the pass, not enough on the run. Um, and then this line, there's a different level that we need to play at offensively. I thought was was really interesting. Um, the one that I'm looking for, and I'm just. Um, one man showing it tonight and going back to this uh, press conference. And it was a long one. Let's see. 
we'll find it here in a minute for you. But um, but oh, yeah, here it's right here. So when asked if they are going to explore the Sean McVay Kyle Shanahan offensive style for the next offensive coordinator, this was Brandon Staley's response. I think it's fair to say that the experiences I have, meaning his experiences with Sean McVay, that's a fair assessment of the style of play because that is the offense that I believe in. So Brandon Sealy is, is telling everybody very publicly that he believes in a more aggressive offense. He believes in that Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay style of offense. You marry that quote with the other quote that he wants to see more of a marriage between the run and the pass. And I think that ultimately what he's getting at is he wants to see somebody that you know uses a hard play action, maybe uses RPO, uses the run game to get to the passing game. Interpreting those quotes that's how I see it. Marriage of run and pass. One complements the other. That's what a marriage does, right? You complement each other. So a marriage of the run and the pass, that is, that's ultimately what, you know, looking back at the season, the team was missing. When things were going great on the ground, they weren't going great through the air. When things were going great through the air, the offense became, you know, it's, it's hard to call an offense stale when, you know, you're, you're throwing it, but you're not throwing it downfield like we talked about, you know, for the big 50, 60 yard gains. Um, sure, there's a lot of completions. Uh, sure, there's a lot of first down conversions, but it's not explosive at that point. So I like that quote from Brandon Staley marriage between the run and the passing game. And then the second quote is interesting. That's the type of offense that I believe in. So is he saying that the offense that that they that they had under Joe Lombardi isn't what he believed in. It's interesting. Um, I think it sets up you know for for an interesting OC hire. And with quotes like that, it's got to be somebody that is splashy. It's got to be somebody that comes in that has a track record of doing just those things that Brandon Staley talked about. So we'll see uh, what ends up transpiring. Um, it could be foreshadowing of exactly the type of person that. The Chargers are looking to bring in, or it could be Brandon Staley after a very tough week, looking to uh, take back some control within the organization and in uh, using a line like "That's the offense that I believe in." Well, we'll see what ends up happening. So, anyway, moving on um, from the Chargers, heading into Sunday's games, uh, Bills and Dolphins. Sunday morning, Sunday morning on the West Coast, of course. We're just going to ignore that any other time zone exists. Sunday morning uh, ended up being a great game. Bills jump out early. Um, you know, have, Miami comes back 17 points in, in the second quarter alone. Uh, and all of a sudden, we've got a pretty exciting game, um, you know, going into halftime. We've talked about Skylar Thompson a little bit. I don't like him. He's a Skylar. Um, it's a weird name. It's a very 90s name. I'm not a fan. Uh, not a great performance from him. He looked uncomfortable. He looked rattled. Uh, he looked like he was rushing every single play. And I get it. It's a difficult situation. Buffalo is ready to run through a brick wall on every single play the way that they're playing right now. You're at Buffalo. The Bills finished the regular season 13-3. and They're one of the hottest teams um, and and could have been, you know, potentially 14-3 uh, and had they, you know, played out that Monday night game. Um, but who's to say? Buffalo, one of the best offenses in the whole league. Uh, defense, you know, no no slouches either on defense. They're one of the hottest teams. Uh, Super Bowl favorites, you know, really from, from day one of the season. So that's what Miami was up against with their third-string quarterback, with Skylar Thompson, who probably very much like Brock Purdy never thought he would actually be in this situation. But 
here we are. Brock Purdy stepped up, uh, did it against a pretty good uh, uh, defense uh, with the Seahawks. Skylar Thompson not able to step up in the same way, nowhere, nowhere close. Um, Skylar Thompson, this one, 18, uh, 45, 220 yards, one touchdown, and two interceptions. He got sacked four times. Um, Josh Allen, though, I mean, he's airing it out, 352 yards total, three touchdowns, but 23 for 39 uh, passes completed. He got sacked seven times. And I know that he's a guy that likes to try and extend the play and run around a little bit and get outside the pocket, you know, every now and then. I wouldn't call him a dual threat quarterback. I would call him a quarterback that's able to extend the play and, you know, maybe at the goal line, uh, find his way uh, into the end zone with a rushing touchdown. He's, he's not slow, but he's not elusive. Put it that way. Um, get sacked seven, seven times in this one. Uh, QB rating for Skylar Thompson, 22.6. QB rating for Josh Allen, 26.1. Obviously hurt by those two interceptions. So, you know, on paper, not great quarterback play in this one. Um, but really not great play from the Dolphins overall. And, you know, really, you look at 220 yards for Skylar Thompson versus 352 for Josh Allen. That's the difference. Stephon Diggs, 114 yards receiving. Gabe Davis for the Bills. Gabe Davis, 113 yards receiving and a touchdown. Then you, you look at Miami's receiving. 69 yards for Tyreek Hill. He's obviously their threat. Uh, Salvan Ahmed. I don't even know this guy's name. I'll be honest. Three receptions. 45 yards. Um, Mike Kosicki, who is still in the National Football League, uh, got the only touchdown, the only receiving touchdown for the Dolphins. So um, very interesting, you know, contrast there. I honestly don't know how the Bills keep doing it uh, with their receiving core behind Stephon Diggs. Cole Beasley. Cole Beasley was on the couch weeks ago, and he's in this game catching a touchdown pass. What Josh Allen is able to do with mediocre receivers is incredible. Um, I think a lot of it, you know, take the seven sacks away. Uh, forget that talking point for now, but I think that the offensive line in Buffalo has a lot to do with it. Uh, being able to, you know, give Josh Allen a clean pocket or allow him to roll outside of it to complete passes. Um, the run game really hasn't been there consistently all season for the Buffalo Bills. De Devin Singletary, only 48 yards in this one. Uh, they did have one rushing touchdown with James Cook. Um, but really not much of a rushing attack to speak of. This team is all about getting it done through the air with Josh Allen. Um, and that's what they've done. And it's going to be interesting when they run into a defense that is able to take away more than one receiver in coverage, uh, especially in man coverage. When those windows get tighter and tighter um, on those 50-50 balls, uh, you know, on those little fade routes to the back of the end zone, Josh Allen is more than capable of making those throws. But it takes a special receiver – to go up and catch those types of throws. So that's what I want to see. Um, Miami's defense not able to shut down Buffalo. Uh, Buffalo, they, they should have ran away with this one. They didn't. Miami kept it close, you know, to their credit, um, primarily just with that big second quarter. But Buffalo wins 34-31 to 31 in the game that was um, a lot closer than I think it should have been. But, man, that last drive, Miami had a shot. Miami really, really had a shot to do something special, and uh, they just couldn't couldn't put it together um, in the end. Uh, had a um, a crucial turnover uh, as well at the end. But um, 
yeah, Buffalo moves on. I think that they'll they'll regroup. They'll head into the divisional round against Cincinnati. Um, you know, certainly looking better. Uh, I think not only defensively but also offensively. So it's a scary matchup for Cincinnati. Um, and then, uh, you know, moving ahead here. Um, hold on, I just pull up my rundown again. Next game of the day. The Giants and Vikings. Okay, so New York Giants. How the hell did we end up here? Nine and seven on the season. Nine, seven, and one. I forgot they even had a tie uh, earlier in the year. I believe that was against uh, the, the football team, uh, formerly known as the Commanders, or the other way around. But um, nine, seven, and one coming out of the NFC East. The NFC East, it was an absolute bloodbath this year somehow. Uh, with three teams ending up in the playoffs. The NFC East that has historically, at least for the better part of the last decade, been a horrible division, one of the worst in football, and you have three playoff teams coming out of that division. And the Giants really toward the end of the year, um, you know, playing some of the better football in that in that division. First time that these two teams met, um, it, was, it was a field goal game uh, with the Vikings walking away with it. Uh, 27 to 24. And at the time, a lot of people thought that game shouldn't have been that close. The Vikings really should have walked away with that one a lot easier. It was kind of a red flag for Minnesota, but we've seen this from Minnesota. We saw Minnesota go down 33 to nothing to the Colts, to Jeff fucking Saturday and the Colts at halftime. Of course, they came back to win that one. But still, you're giving up 33 points and a half to the Colts who don't even really have a quarterback. Uh we saw the Vikings get absolutely blown out of the water by the Green Bay Packers, a very mediocre Green Bay Packers team. Um, could have ended up a playoff team. Didn't. Aaron Rodgers in that game was playing for his for his playoff life. Got it done. But we've seen that this Minnesota Vikings team isn't super well-rounded. They're not the type of team, you know, maybe like the Bills, where they just go out and they just play strong, consistent football for four quarters. And even if the game is close here and there, you're not that worried about it because they're the Bills. This is the Vikings. This is Kirk Cousins, who's had shot after shot after shot in the NFL. He's gotten it done, but there's still, somehow there's still question marks around Kirk Cousins at this point in his career. He wasn't the problem, though, in this one. Completes 31 passes on 39 attempts, 273 yards, two touchdowns. The difference maker here was Daniel Jones at the quarterback position for the, the New York Giants. I mean, this guy looked like Patrick Mahomes. 301 yards through the air, 24 of 35, two touchdowns, no interceptions on the ground. 17 carries, 78 yards. He's their leading rusher. He gets 17 carries, 17 times. Daniel Jones calls his own number. Saquon Barkley, by many factors, still one of the best running backs in the league, especially when he's healthy, especially when he's playing good football like he is right now. Nine carries. No, Daniel Jones, 17 carries, 78 yards. That that dude is a workhorse. That guy, Daniel Jones, I mean, he, he's he been talented. The Giants haven't helped him out, you know, really with great offensive line play. Uh, the running back situation has been in flux with the health of Saquon Barkley. Uh, the wide receivers that Daniel Jones is tasked with throwing with. I mean, in this one, Isaiah Hodgins uh, looks like a world beater, but, you know, where did he come from? Darius Slayton. I mean, Darius Slayton is, is talented, but he's, you know, He's, he's no Justin Jefferson, you know, just getting his career started, if you know what I mean. 
Um, Saquon Barkley had five receptions for 56 yards out of the backfield in this one. So he's not getting the touches uh, on the ground, but he's getting the targets through the air. And that's pretty much their offense. But you look at the offense, 90% of it is Daniel Jones, whether it's through the air, whether he's getting it done with his legs on the ground. He was a difference maker. Um, But this one, Giants win 31-24. I don't think a whole lot of people saw it working out this way. I think it was nice to have the Giants back in the playoffs. Stellar first year for Brian Dable. He has to be coach of the year. Uh, there's there's no doubt in my mind that that he's coach of the year um, in in the NFL. And I once again, Giants find a way to get it done. That's just you know that's just kind of been the theme of their season. Just running it back really quick all the way to week one. They find a way to get it done against the Titans by one point, twenty one to twenty. Uh, with that gutsy call by Brian Dable to go for two instead of, you know, laying up and going to overtime. No, you're on the road. It's week one. You're a brand new coach. Fuck it. Go for two. Win the game. Um, you know, this this is a team that beat the Green Bay Packers, beat the Baltimore Ravens, uh, beat the Jacksonville Jaguars in Jacksonville. Then they come out and, you know, they lose to uh, the Lions and, you know, they have a couple losses to the Cowboys. Cowboys are, you know, a playoff team. <clears throat> they have a tie against the Commanders. So in their division, they go uh, just a th- three-week span here. Lost to the Cowboys. Tie to the football team. Lost to the Eagles. Then they come back with a win against the, the Commanders, the football team. Um, but then they have that, that loss against the Vikings. So it's a very... It's it's a very Giants season. It's a very nine seven and one season. But this game against the Vikings had a very nine seven and one feel to it. Giants come out early, um, fourteen points in the first quarter. Uh, Minnesota comes back. You're twenty four to twenty one at halftime uh, in favor of the Giants. So it's close. And I think at that point, Giants fans around the country said, okay, you know, this is where the Vikings are a second half team. We talked about it against Indianapolis. Kirk Cousins is going to come out and absolutely just light up, you know, this uh, this Giants defense that has flashes. Kayvon Thibodeau looks like every bit of a generational talent, but it's a defense that has flashes without much consistency so far at this point. So everyone's thinking, okay, you're on the road. Minnesota's becoming a tougher and tougher environment to, put, to play in at U.S. Bank Stadium. This is where they do their work in the second half at home. Nope. Giants just keep plugging away, put up a touchdown in the third quarter, put up a field goal in the fourth, just enough to kind of keep that separation. And I'm not going to say that they shut down the Minnesota Vikings offense in the second half, but they kept them in check. The defense gave the offense a chance to get the ball back and – to run some clock down, and that's exactly what they did. They just – the offense kind of just sat on it, and that's all that you need to do. It was good, disciplined football, and that's a sign of a great head coach, and that's what the New York Giants have right now in Brian Dable. Um, moving on on Sunday, the Sunday night game, Ravens and Bengals. Uh, I thought that the Bengals were going to absolutely destroy the Ravens in this one and run away with it. They only win by a touchdown, 24-17. to 17. Um, but this game, a lot of storylines revolving around Lamar Jackson coming into it. Is Lamar Jackson's heart still in it? You know, there were some backhanded comments and some rumors flying around that the coaching staff thought that maybe, you know, Lamar Jackson could go 
and it's a pain management thing rather than a real injury thing. Um, but uh, did he really need to go? Because Tyler Huntley, Tyler Huntley played good football and competitive football to get the Ravens to this situation. You certainly don't want to find yourselves matched up against the Bengals. I think that they could have won a few more games if Lamar Jackson was back there and found themselves in a better situation, uh, especially for wild card weekend. But, you know, it is what it is. This is a team lost the last game of the season and found themselves in the sixth, sixth seed. So you reap what you sow. And that's ultimately, you know, what we saw play out here. This is why every single seed is important. Um, you don't want to be matched up with the Bengals in Cincinnati uh, on wild card weekend. But, I mean, really, okay, so T Tyler Huntley in this one, 226 yards through the air, uh, 17 of 29. Joe Burrow, the great Joe Burrow, took his team to a Super Bowl already, 23 of 32, only 209 yards through the air. So, I mean, Tyler Huntley, he's he's getting it done, you know, a little bit more so than, than even Joe Burrow is in this one from the quarterback position. That's something to be commended. Um, I think I thought that the Tyler Huntley stepped up, uh, played great, made the best out of a, a weird situation. And with everything going on with Lamar and his injury and, you know, should he try to play through it or should he not? Tyler Huntley put his head down and he said, hey, I'm, I'm just going to go play football to the best of my ability. My ability may not be Lamar Jackson's ability, but it's certainly enough to win football games and keep my team in it. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, we'll see what, what happens with Lamar Jackson going forward. Is there a rift there between him and John Harbaugh? Uh, is Baltimore a team, you know, that he wants to be with, uh, in the long run? Is he starting to think more and more about his health? Uh, you know, we see, we see situations where, you know, quarterbacks are, it's, they're, they're more protected than ever, but they're almost more targeted than ever. If you can get a shot on a quarterback, especially a guy like Lamar Jackson, who is a true dual threat quarterback, who does have designed runs called for him, who gets outside the pocket and makes plays with his legs, whether it's called for him or not. You know, that's something for him to think about. And it's still a very, very attractive style. But if Lamar Jackson is worried about his long-term health, he may need to dial it back. And is that something that the Ravens are asking him to do, you know, at this point? Or do they want the Lamar Jackson of, you know, three, four years ago who can just go out and, and completely take over a game? An MVP player. That's what he is. So I do think that there's a, a rift in the expectations for what Lamar Jackson sees the next several years of his career, of, of his career going five, six, seven years of his career. And ultimately what the Ravens expect him to do, you know, in the near future and the distant future. Uh, if they do in fact, want to keep him around um, in Baltimore long-term because they're going to have to open up the checkbook uh, pretty significantly to do so. It looks like so. Um, but yeah, Bengals move on. I think everybody expected that. The one possession game um, was a nice surprise. That was a fantastic Sunday night game. And then we get to Monday. Um, I got to pull up my notes here. On my son, on my Monday night football, yes, MNF, that's Monday night football. Monday night football is a whole ass. That's what I wrote um, about this one. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, not much that you can really say about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers performance. They get shut out in the first half. Um, it's not really like the Dallas Cowboys were dominant either. 
you know, for the longest time, it felt like this would never end. For, for the longest time, it was 12 to nothing. Every time, every single play, nothing happens. And they're just, you know, they're either punting it back and forth or Brett Maher is just kicking it, you know, into the void to try and give us a storyline out of this one, I, I guess. Thank you, Brett Maher, for for being absolute ass in the kicking game for your team uh, to give us something to talk about here that isn't Tom Brady. Uh, appreciate it, bud. But I uh, Oh my God. Like I looking at these numbers, these are like the worst type of video game numbers. Like when you're, when, when you're playing, okay. So like you're playing Madden and you're the Buccaneers because you're a huge Tom Brady Mark. And you're just like, you're just mad. You're just spamming like, you know, go routes. Uh, you're just spamming four verticals, every single play on that controller, because that's, that's the only way that you end up with, Tom Brady being 35 completions on 66 attempts for 351 yards. That's insane. I mean, he's still averaging over 10 yards per completion, two touchdowns through the air, one interception. You look at the total package for Tom Brady in this game, it's really not that bad, but then you look at 66 attempts to get there. And that's like, yeah, that's just, that's spamming four verticals, you know, on your controller, but when you get shut out uh, 18 to nothing through two quarters of play and you're at home and it's a playoff game, that's what you have to do. That's what Tom Brady is there for. You are there to spam four verticals. You're, you're there to just, you know, mash your, your controller and try to put up stupid numbers. And he damn near did it in this one, you know, looking at it on paper, it's not as bad as it looked, but a lot of that granted it's in garbage time. Um, it's, Neither team came out of this one really looking stellar, I don't think. That, I mean, Dak Prescott on, on paper, again, on paper, you know, 25 of 33, 305 yards, four touchdowns through the air, but it, it didn't look like a dominating performance. You give me Brock Purdy's performance against Seattle, and I'm going to tell you that that's a better quarterback performance than Dak Prescott had here against Tampa Bay. It just was. It was gutsier, it was grittier. Uh, the throws, he, he made more throws that mattered than Dak Prescott made. And that's just, that's just how it was. Um, Cowboys moving on, you know, obviously, uh, after the win, the defense for the Cowboys is one of the best in the league. I think that we all expected coming into this, that it would be very difficult for Tom Brady and the Bucks to really get much going. It certainly was on the ground, um, through the air. You know, 351 yards through the air. Uh, Tom Brady spreading the ball around. Chris Godwin, six receptions. Julio Jones, seven receptions, including a massive one um, in the second half. Mike Evans, six receptions. But it's, you know, 85 yards, 74 yards, 74 yards right there, respectively, for those three receivers. But it just didn't feel like a dominant performance. Like it didn't feel like Brady and Gronk where, you know, like, you know, Gronk is open on every single play, especially in the red zone. It felt like Tom Brady was really hunting to, to target, you know, that many different wide receivers. Didn't seem like the game plan, but with the defense like Dallas's, how can it seem like the game plan? You know, how can you really game plan for that? Of course you have to spread the ball around. That's what Tampa Bay kind of figured out, but too little, too late for them, way too late for them. Um, they didn't even, you know, really put points, significant points on the board until the fourth quarter. Uh, 
in this game. This game just sucked. It was it was brutal. It was a bad way for Monday Night Football to end. Um, nothing that you know. I guess the NFL could do in this situation. You're you're putting Tom Brady against the Cowboys uh, Monday Night in prime time for the last Monday Night Football game of the season. It's a pretty damn good decision, you know, if you're trying to write the script here, but it doesn't always work out that way. So Wild Card Weekend ends with uh, an absolute dog shit game. Should have been better. But the real question and what everyone's going to be talking about ad nauseum for the next several months is what does Tom Brady do from here? Was this his last game? Does he stay in Tampa Bay if he is coming back and try to run it back there? Does he go to a team like Miami and stay in Florida? And, you know, Miami, maybe they need a quarterback. Maybe they don't. Um, does he go to Las Vegas and the Raiders, who clearly need a quarterback? And they have a brand new stadium. And they have one of the most loyal fan bases in the whole country. You know, are they a quarterback away from being a Super Bowl contender? I don't think they are. I think they have bigger problems. Maybe not bigger problems, but certainly more problems than just a quarterback. Certainly. But they've got Devontae Adams. That doesn't suck. If you're Tom Brady, you want to go play with that guy. You know, does he call up the San Francisco 49ers and say, hey, don't fuck around with Mr. Irrelevant. Don't fuck around with Jimmy G. Don't fuck around with Trey Lance, who, you know, really hasn't played many downs of football over the last few years, several years now. Bring in a Hall of Famer, bring in the GOAT, bring in somebody who knows how to win Super Bowls. I'm going to go get you a Super Bowl because that's what you need. Not saying that the Niners won't get it done this year because they very well might. Like I said, I think they're they're playing the best football top to bottom, offense and defense being considered uh, of anybody, certainly in the NFC, maybe in the whole league. But that situation to Tom Brady, I can see it being appealing. Does Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch really want to introduce an element and an ingredient like Tom Brady into the situation in San Francisco that is already a very convoluted quarterback room. I don't know. That's a big call to make. Who knows if Tom Brady would even, you know, if he's even entertaining that. Um, but last year, obviously, it was it was rumored with the quarterback situation in San Francisco. So why the hell can't it be rumored again? But if this is it for Tom Brady, not only what a career, we don't have to talk about that, but it's an interesting way to go out because he could have gone out you know on a boat at a boat party drinking avocado tequila and as a Super Bowl champion and instead he decides to run it back and yes he goes out you know as a playoff quarterback but he goes out at eight and nine in the regular season um and he goes out with you know pretty good numbers putting up 351 but he goes out with a loss uh, against Dallas where the offense was shut out for the entire first half and really didn't do too much outside of gar garbage time in the second half either. So is this the, the legacy that he wants to leave? Or, you know, like I said, does he kind of want to look and pick and choose his spot? Because he'll be able to do that. He's Tom Brady after all. But I'm just, I'm curious what he's considering as he makes these decisions. Does he just want to go play more football? That's fine. Football's fun especially if you're the best quarterback to ever do it. It's fun. Is, is he looking for a distraction because of his family situation? Is his family situation caused because of his decision to go back or vice versa? I Who knows? Who knows? Can't get into that. But can't get inside the man's head. But either way, 
I think that Tom Brady really does have to consider his health at this point, his life after football. Uh, he could name his price and end up on any any television broadcast on Fox, NBC, or CBS, uh, or ESPN covering the NFL. You know, maybe maybe it's time for him to start thinking in that direction. Um, he could end up on the ownership side as long as he didn't didn't lose too much money in the FTX fiasco. Uh, but he could certainly still end up on the on the ownership side, I would imagine, if he wants to go that route. Um, he could end up, you know, on the coaching side, uh, even just being a special advisor or an offensive consultant or something along those lines. If he wants to dip his toe into coaching, he could do anything he wants in the sport. And I think that when he looks around, he's obviously not worried about his health. Number one, he's he's you know you've got you've got the Brett Favre's, the Tom Brady's, guys that. We retire, they unretire, they play, you know, in Brett Favre's case, in my opinion, way too late uh, into, into his career to the point where it's like, okay, you're, you're Brett Favre, but, you know, it's, it's almost like a, like a Terrell Owens situation. It's like, all right, yeah, you're, you're one of the best to ever do it at the position, but it's time for you to go. You can't just pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm Brett Favre and I'm going to come play for your team. Tom Brady right now, he could probably do that. But the time to do that is running out. On the other side of the spectrum, You've got a guy like Andrew Luck in his prime, the peak of his career. He decides to retire. He says, no, it's not worth it. It's not worth my health. It's not worth the rest of my life. Uh, Concussions are very real and very scary. And as Andrew Luck was learning more and more about concussions and unfortunately experiencing concussions, he said, you know what? I made some good money. I had a great experience. I had a phenomenal college career. I had a pretty decent you know, NFL career, certainly uh, certainly better than your average NFL quarterback has. And by a lot of, a lot of ways to look at it, had a great NFL career. And he said, you know what? This is enough. This is enough football for me. I'm going to step away. Tom Brady, other end of the spectrum, but it paid off. He got a Super Bowl ring in Tampa Bay. I mean, that's pretty damn cool. Uh, and he's still doing it and he's still doing it at a, at a very high level into his forties, but he's, he's got to look around the league and he's got to look at, you know, just, the risk factor, we talked about it earlier. The quarterbacks are more protected than they've ever been, but they're also more targeted than they've ever been. Tom Brady can look right down the road in Miami and see what's going on with, with Tua and, 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 and his concussions, two confirmed and, and three maybe possible this year. That changes the, the projection of a career. Um, quarterbacks still you know, end up with catastrophic injuries um, in this day and age. You look back to Alex Smith, he, and Alex Smith – absolute fucking warrior able to come back from that, but catastrophic leg injury that, that changed, you know, really the course of his career. And instead of being able to have the type of, of career where Alex Smith kind of goes out, you know, on his own terms, he was always a guy that kind of had to fight for his spot, but established veteran would have always probably, you know, been able to find a starting job at least for the next few years ends up with a catastrophic le- leg injury. And that leg injury is going to affect him for the rest of his life. And Tom Brady, relatively healthy for his career, uh, had the uh, the ACL and the knee injury, but relatively healthy. And he's going to be going to a situation that's going to have some major question marks, uh, you know, regardless of what he decides to do next year and where he decides to go if he decides to stay on the field. Because, you know, you you just look at really the root of the problem. And the root of a quarterback problem almost always starts with the offensive line. So he's that's that's what I really think he should be looking at. Who's got the best offensive line to keep me clean? You know, whose offensive line in 2022 had the least amount of, of quarterback pressures or gave gave their quarterback the most amount of time to throw? 
then you can start looking at it differently. And then it is a quarterback problem. Okay. You know, let's say that, let's say that Derek Carr had, you know, an average of over two seconds in the pocket to, to throw and that he was kept pretty clean and that he just wasn't getting the job done and it wasn't on the, on the offensive line. Okay. That could be a good situation. Not saying any of that's true, but I'm saying that I think that at this point, that's how Tom Brady is going to look at things. So if he comes back, something to keep an eye on. I really hope that we don't drag this out, you know, into the summer um, like we did. I really hope it's a quick decision. Uh, or I just hope that we don't hear anything about it, which I know is is an absolute pipe dream. We're going to hear about this probably every week. Here we are hearing about it and speculating on it right now. So <sighs> let's fucking move on. <laughs> um, other NFL storylines not revolving around Wild Card Weekend. Um, and honestly, I don't even want to get into a preview of the divisional games. Read that shit online. It's all out there. Fantastic matchups coming up. Either way, what I want to talk about We've always talked about since this show's inception uh, uh, over two months ago now. We've always talked about college football uh, extensively. That's kind of our bread and butter. It's, it's what we all know. It's a common ground between, you know, Alex and I being hockey guys and, you know, Ryan and I being uh, Formula One guys. Uh, we're all college football fans. We're all college football fans. We're all NFL fans. So, of course, that's why this time of year, fall into winter, very college football heavy, very NFL heavy. Um, so two things that I just wanted to touch on uh, on the college football side of things. C.J. Stroud finally declares for the draft out of Ohio State. This is a guy, in my opinion, uh, unbiased because I I was certainly not very thrilled with uh, some performances that C.J. Stroud had um, during his time at, at the Ohio State. But uh, – but here, here nor there, this is a guy who is locked in for me as a top five draft pick. I think the Texans take a long look. I think uh, the Colts take a long look. Um, I think the Lions take a long look if he gets there. But um, yeah, this uh, the, the C.J. Stroud situation, it's it's a saga. It was a saga from the second, from the second he stepped on a field for Ohio State. It was a saga this season at times. Um, it's been a saga in, uh, in the game against Michigan. Um, I think he put a lot of that to rest with his performance against Georgia. And I think that that performance against Georgia is what solidified him as a top 10 pick. Um, we talked about this, so we don't need to talk about it again, but he finally declares for the draft. He, he does it the last day of the season. And because he does, or not on the season, the last day um, that, that you're able to, January 16th, was the deadline. And, of course, it's a saga. So, lost to Georgia. You know, a lot of players, they lose on Saturday. They declare on Monday. You know, it's kind of it's kind of how it goes. All of a sudden, you know, a few days go by, C.J. Stroud hasn't declared yet. Then a week goes by, and C.J. Stroud hasn't declared yet. And then we start to get into, you know, nearly two weeks going by. And now we're not, now we're not talking about how long it's been since the Georgia game and how long it's been. And, you know, why hasn't CJ declared yet? The conversation moves to, oh shit, there's only three days left for CJ to declare, or there's two, or there's one, or he has to declare today. And of course, of course he declares. That was always going to be the outcome. If you look at the last two quarterbacks for Ohio State, to go to the draft, Dwayne Haskins and Justin Fields, they waited till the last day. 
Ohio State doesn't like to step on each other's toes. They let the let guys kind of go one by one and give everybody, you know, their time to announce and thank everybody and thank their teammates, the, the coaching staff and the school and, and their families and everybody involved. And it's a very methodical, classy way to do it. And when you produce as many NFL prospects as Ohio State does year after year, it's a very good way to do it to make sure that everybody gets their moment in the sun. And it doesn't matter if you are, you know, a second year, uh, you know, senior safety that might have a, a fifth year of eligibility and you're announcing that you're going to the draft or you're a guy like CJ Stroud who's locked in in the top five. So this was always going to be the outcome, but it was fun. There were rumors coming out of Columbus that he was signing a seven-figure NIL deal that had multiple donors behind it to stay at Ohio State. And rumors, obviously, they weren't true, but rumors can still be fun because they can lead to interesting talking points. And what this got me thinking was, okay, in this NIL era of college football, you've created a situation with a talent like C.J. Stroud or anybody. Could have, could have been Bryce Young. Um, you know, could have been Will Nevis, um, could have been, you know, Will Anderson, uh, the defensive end out of Alabama, who's also projected top five pick. It could be anybody, but you've created a situation where if you have enough money flowing through a school and to a player via NIL, you've created a situation where hypothetically CJ Stroud could have said, you know what, I'm going to make a seven figure bet on myself and I'm going to bet that next year in 2024's draft, I'm still going to be a top five pick and I'm going to go make a few million in NIL money in the meantime. One, one report, it's not even a report, it's somebody on Twitter, but somebody on Twitter speculated that the NIL deal was $1.7 million. Is that enough to give up 25 to $30 million as a top NFL pick? Probably not. Another report speculated later on that it was more in the neighborhood of six to $7 million. Is six to $7 million enough to give up a potential 25 to $30 million. Well, maybe in that range, maybe it is. Maybe you're thinking, okay, I can make $6 million right now. I stay at school for another year. I go to the, to the draft next year. I'm still a top five pick and I'm still going to walk away with 25 to $30 million. Why not? Why not do it? Health, obviously, that's the big concern. Uh, a decline in your performance. Um, Ohio State, you know, really isn't losing they're, they're not losing their top wide receiver, Marvin Harrison Jr. He's coming back. Um, they're not losing uh, Amika Egbuka, their number two. Um, they're not losing Cade Stover, who said that he's not going to the draft. He will be back at Ohio State uh, as their, their tight end. Um, so he's going to have weapons there. They have two five-star receivers coming in next year. It's, 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 it's not about having weapons. It's never going to be about having a good offensive line at Ohio State. It's never going to be about feeling protected and believing that you can continue to produce at a high level. But there's always a threat of injury. That's that's the biggest threat. You know, let, let's say that something unfortunate happens and a top prospect, you know, takes an, an NIL deal to, to skirt the draft and go back for one more year. And they end up tearing up an ACL. Well, we've seen guys be able to bounce back from an ACL. We've seen wide receivers still end up as very high first-round picks with ACL injuries, Jamison Williams. Um, so an ACL injury, if it's not a damning injury the way that it may have used to have been you know, 20, 30 years ago, if it's not a damning injury for a wide receiver, it's certainly not going to be a damning injury for a quarterback. We saw Tom Brady have an ACL injury and bounce back just fine from it. So, you know, things like, 
things like ACLs, players bounce back from them all the time. It takes time, it takes a year. But player like CJ Stroud, maybe if there's an injury, maybe he's not a top five pick. Maybe he's a top 15 pick. Money's still pretty good. But is it worth it at that point? Financially, no. The drop-off between the top five picks and the number 15 to you know number 20 pick is, is significant in the first round of the NFL draft. So I get it. I totally get it. Then you look at more serious injuries like concussions. Uh, you know, concussions seem to be more prevalent um, in the game than ever before. CJ Stroud was very protected during his college career. Uh, Ryan Day didn't call plays that required him uh, to run it or, you know, even to really get outside the, the, the pocket too much, uh, too much criticism. But we did see a little bit uh, of that out of CJ Stroud in the, in the Georgia game when it mattered. Um, so he certainly has that ability. So who's to say? But it was an interesting notion that a player can now go make a few million as, you know, a quarterback or as an elite player at their university before they go to the NFL draft. And I think that we will see a player pretty soon, you know, certainly within the next year or two, I would say that is going to make a bet on themselves and say, no, I'm going to take more money up front right now. You know, give me four or five, six million, I'll stay at school and then I'll go back to the draft and I'll be, you know, a first round, top of the first round pick overall uh, anyway. Um, I mean, we even saw it with Justin Herbert. Justin Herbert was pretty much a lock to be a first round pick in a pretty thin quarterback class when he was coming out of Oregon his junior year. He said, nope, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to run it back one more year. Ends up uh, still as a first round pick, top 10 pick to the Chargers. Obviously, that's worked out pretty good for Justin Herbert. Chargers get a franchise quarterback out of it. So, you know, he he could have taken the money, but he said, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet on myself. But the difference is that Justin Herbert, from where he was projected to go that year, he probably bought himself another 10 slots in the, in the draft. And like we said, big gap. Big big gap between the bottom 10 of the draft and the, and the top 10. So just an interesting thought, something to keep an eye on. Um, and I think it's going to definitely throw some intrigue into uh, some of these NFL draft decisions that, that we're going to see in years to come as the NIL landscape gets a little more figured out, a little more streamlined, and uh, and more and more money starts to you know really flow uh, to these players. Um, last college football storyline, last football storyline that I want to touch on, John or John Harbaugh. Wow, Jim Harbaugh, little Jimmy, um, is staying uh, at at that school up north in Michigan. Um, as an Ohio State fan, I'm I'm happy, I'm thrilled about this. Uh, he's what two and five now. Um, with essentially a forfeit against Ohio State when he didn't play during COVID. Um, but uh, yeah, ultimately, we've seen this from Jim Harbaugh every single year. It's like Tom Brady retiring. We're sick of hearing about it. The season ends for Michigan with a loss, as is tradition. And Jim Harbaugh puts his tail between his legs and he says, you know what? I think I want to go to the NFL. You know, I'm going to explore, you know, the Vikings job was last year. And he was heavily rumored to... You know, I mean, I mean, not even rumored. He he interviewed with the Denver Broncos um, this year, uh, pretty extensively, I, I guess, for a couple of hours via Zoom. And uh, the prospect of an in-person inter- interview was on the table; never came to fruition. Um, depending on who you believe, his own people reached out to the Carolina Panthers about the opening there. Uh, Indianapolis certainly would have been interested um, had it gotten you know that far to the point where he said, "Yeah, you know, I I am really going to start accepting multiple." you know, NFL interviews and, and even offers. Um, but it's, it's a really cheap card to play over and over. Uh, you, 
you can't do this as a college coach because eventually this act is going to wear thin. Last year, um, he had the benefit of beating Ohio State for the first time and uh, and ending up as a playoff team. Um, this year, he beats him for a second time, so he thinks he has more leverage. And he says, okay, now I've kind of maybe established my, my two and five legacy against Ohio State. And I'm going to go and uh, I'm going to go to the NFL um, and, you know, try my hand there again. All that he's really looking for is more money out of Michigan. It worked the first time. We'll see if it worked the second time. We'll see what the catalyst was to get him to stick around if there is a new contract on the table uh, for, for old Jimbo. But um, I think it's going to wear really thin with recruits. I think that in the in the transfer portal era and in the NIL era, when there's so many other incentives than just a good football coach at a good football program to go to school, there's all these other incentives. It's really going to wear thin on recruits when they say, okay, you know, all right. Yes, Jim, Jim Harbaugh is going to sell me on, you know, Michigan. And, you know, maybe there's some NIL money there. Maybe there's not or whatever, but there's a good program. There's a historic program. There's a good coach with good experience now at the college level and obviously at the NFL level. But is he going to pull the same song and dance? Am I going to have to deal with, you know, the media asking me, you, you know, at the end of the season, if, if Harbaugh is staying or going and, you know, if I'm going to transfer and it's nobody wants that chaos. No one wants that chaos. And you don't see Nick Saban doing that year after year. You know, you don't see Ryan Day um, doing that year after year. There were rumors about Ryan Day potentially returning to the NFL and he shot him down. I was with the, the Eagles, I believe. Um, he shot him down immediately. He said, no, I'm, I'm staying here. He worked out a new deal for himself, but the rumors didn't persist. He certainly didn't take any interviews. He certainly didn't reach out to the Carolina Panthers about their job opening. So you just don't see the elite college coaches doing it. Um, even Lincoln Riley, when when he was heavily linked to the Cowboys, and you know it was rumored that he was their guy, and that Jerry Jones really wanted him in Dallas. You know he he maybe he did something worse, and he left Oklahoma high and dry to go to USC. But he's not flirting with the NFL year after year. Kirby Smart is not flirting with the NFL year after year. Um, you know, Brian Kelly left to go to LSU, left in pretty cold fashion when he left Notre Dame, but he's not flirting with the NFL year after year. So college coaches, yes, you know, they are going to move around. There's not much loyalty there, but with Jim Harbaugh, it just seems to be year after year. There's this rumor of he wants to go back to the NFL. He entertains it. He takes interviews. He floats rumors through his own people. He reaches out to teams on his own. So as a recruit, when there's so much else on the table with other programs, that's something that I think is going to be factored in. Will it matter all that much? Who knows? Uh, Jim Harbaugh has, you know, at least for the last two years, he's been able to make chicken salad out of chicken shit. Um, you know, with with where the Michigan recruiting classes stack up uh, compared to some others and where the team ends up as a whole at the end of the season. So maybe in Jim Harbaugh's mind, it doesn't matter that much to him because he'll always go get his players and he'll build them up and you know, really make them play to the best of their abilities, as a good coach does. So why shouldn't he be able to entertain NFL offers in the meantime? I don't know. I think that if you're at a program, you stick to that program, and you know, maybe when things turn south, if they turn south, uh, you know, maybe that's that's when you start looking for your next gig uh, before you get shown the door. But for somebody who stands, you know, in front of a locker room and takes his shirt off and yells, "Who's got it better than us?" He certainly thinks that the NFL, you know, might might have it better than Michigan right now. So, um, again, you know, here we are. He's staying at Michigan. 
Um, I'm happy about it as a Buckeye fan. So, but um, yeah, anyway, divisional weekend coming up in football. Uh, hopefully, we get some more games that are of uh, the quality that we saw um, for 90% of the wild card games because that was damn entertaining. Um, yes, I'm going skiing again on Saturday because, of course, I am. Uh, yes, I will absolutely go back and I'll probably be watching the night game live between the Giants and the Eagles. I'll certainly catch up on, you know, all the highlights and Sunday I'm sitting on my couch. I'm not moving. Um, and, uh, I'm watching, uh, you know, two really exciting games on Sunday, particularly excited about the Niners and the Cowboys. Um, great historical rivalry there. Um, I'm excited to see, you know, if the Niners offense can keep pace, uh, against, the Cowboys defense, that's going to be something to watch. And ultimately, you know, I said, I didn't want to do predictions, but ultimately I think that, you know, the Niners defense matches up very, very well against the uh, Cowboys offense. So anyway, great weekend coming up. Um, I do want to get to some major league baseball news. Carlos Correa is finally after all of this, a twin after failed physicals and, you know, contract negotiations that stretched uh, well into the early morning hours uh, on the East Coast in New York City uh, for Correa and Scott Boris and the Mets. Um, we finally have a solution, and the solution is that Correa ends up back in Minnesota as a twin uh, on a deal that I believe is actually a little bit less in guaranteed money than the twins offered him uh, to stick around earlier in the season. So, sorry, sip of water. Um, but I... Uh, it was an interesting situation. It was a saga that we saw play out over, you know, what, what turned into several weeks. Um, it started with, you know, just looking at the numbers here, it started with a $350 million contract offer uh, from the San Francisco Giants. And that was over 13 years, just an absolute mega deal. That was agreed to on December 13th. So obviously the physical falls through. It's about a week later. On December 21st. Um, and I'm honestly not even sure if this is like 3 a.m. on the 21st or if it's like the night of the 21st into the 22nd, but either way, let's call it about a week, you know, eight, nine days later. Carlos Correa agrees to a deal with the Mets. 12 years, 315 million this time. So one year less, uh, $35 million less in guaranteed money still by all intents and purposes, an absolute mega deal. Then he fails the 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 uh, physical again. So, okay, now everybody is saying, what's going on? I said earlier a few weeks ago on the show that I believe there was a conspiracy theory. I believe that the Mets saw an opportunity to jump and that they would say, okay, let's sign Carlos Correa. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's give him, you know, 12 years instead of 13 and say, all right, Hey, you filled the physical. Yeah. We're kind of worried. We weren't going to go to 13 anywhere or anyway, but we'll give you 12 and we'll give you 315 million. You're still North of 315 million. You're still setting a record, you know, by many metrics and okay. Yeah. Come play for the Mets. We don't care about the luxury tax. Great. Fine. So, so that happens. It's agreed to. Then all of a sudden we have a, another failed physical and it's the same ankle that was the problem in San Francisco. Well, Scott Boris shed some light on why that physical with the Mets was failed uh, again. Had a really interesting quote uh, from an interview with Bob Nightingale in, in USA Today. Um, Scott Boris said, I don't understand the Mets. I gave them all of the information. We had them talk to four doctors. So you got four doctors involved with this physical with the Mets. They knew the issue the Giants had. 
and yet they still call the same doctor the Giants used for his opinion. There was no new information. So why negotiate a contract if you were going to rely on the same doctor? It was different with the Giants because the doctor had an opinion that they didn't know about. But the Mets had notice of this. They knew the opinion of the Giants. So why did you negotiate when you know this thing in advance? That's the uh, quote from Scott Boris. It's interesting. Why did the Mets bring in the exact same doctor? Did they want him to confer with their own medical personnel and you know have the Mets medical personnel maybe give a different opinion and ask some different questions about how this might affect the player long-term? Maybe. Maybe that's a part of it. Or is it a situation like we speculated about on the show? Is it a situation where the Mets are saying, hey, we have an opportunity here. Okay, sure. Float 12 years and 315 million. Put that on the table. Let's get him to agree to it. Let's get him to our facility. Let's have doctors check him out. But let's make sure that we bring out the same doctor. Let's make sure that we get the same opinion. So now we've got him in the room. Now two contracts that are well north of $300 million are off the table. Now we've got them. It's almost like the Mets bought an exclusive negotiating window with Carlos Correa and with his agent, Scott Boris, by saying, hey, okay, yeah, sure. You know, here's a 12-year contract, $315 million, whatever. Let's check out your ankle or, you know, whatever it was, heavily rumored to be the ankle. Let's get you checked out by our doctors and let's bring in some other doctors to look at it. Let's bring in four doctors and, yeah, oh, by the way, let's bring in the same doctor that the Giants had and let's arrive at the, exactly the same conclusion. Okay. Now, $315 million off the table. Now, we're only interested in giving you you know, a six-year deal or a seven-year deal, which the Mets did. They negotiated for a few weeks back and forth, um, three weeks back and forth about, okay, how do we make this work? How do we throw incentives in there for, you know, for plate appearances? How do we make sure that you're staying on the field? How do we make sure that this ankle injury isn't an issue? And Carlos Correa and Scott Boris are saying, okay, fine, you know, let's – Let's put plate appearances in there, but you know, let's put provisions in there of okay, was it really an ankle injury or was it something else? You know, did I get hit, you know, in the wrist by a wild pitch and fracture my wrist? And that has nothing to do with the ankle. So, you know, of course, there's all this back and forth. There's a lot of the same language that was rumored to be in the final Mets proposal uh, that was very incentive laden. Uh, there's a lot of that same language that is in the contract that uh, the Carlos Correa ended up signing with the Twins to return to Minnesota. So. That contract in Minnesota, six years, $200 million guaranteed. $200 million is still a stupid amount of money. It's dumb. It's almost like, what's the difference between two and $300 million? It's not really a different lifestyle, you know? Maybe you're setting up another four or five generations of your family, you know, for life. But it's, it's still stupid. Quality of life, this isn't going from, you know, a $300 million offer to a uh, a $3 million offer, you know, for example, that's when you really start to worry over, you know, I fucked up here, but so Carlos Correa is still going to get paid six years, $200 million guaranteed. Now this deal with incentives, this, this could be worth a lot more if he hits uh, certain incentives with plate appearances. Um, I believe that the, the number on the back end of it, so it's a six year guarantee, but it's ultimately a 10 year contract. Uh, if he plays it out, but there's incentives that, and there's, there's, there's options that trigger, uh, if Carlos Correa hits, uh, played appearances thresholds, um, after, uh, after 2028. So in 29, 30, 31 and 32, um, he would have to hit plate appearance thresholds in order to earn, 
um, $33.3 million, uh, or sorry, $25 million in, um, well, $25 million in 2029, 20 in 2030, 15 in 2031, and 2032 with those vesting options. So that is, um, that's that's what it is. Very, very incentive laden. You, you, you don't usually see that uh, in Major League Baseball. You used to see it a lot in the NFL. You had guaranteed money versus signing bonus money. Now, uh, most NFL contracts include more guaranteed money, um, especially for you know the higher profile free agents. It's nearly all guaranteed money uh, for those types of guys, You know your franchise quarterbacks. But that's always kind of been the norm in Major League Baseball. These contracts have always been you know guaranteed, um, barring you know something insane because there are you know if you go out and kill a guy and you're under contract, you know the MLB team can can fight to not pay you what you owed. But even then, it's it's difficult. There's a lot of lawyers involved. Um, there's the players' association involved, MLBPA, strongest union in sports. Um, so a lot of different factors. So to see a deal go from and a player go from two contracts north of 10 years each, north of $300 million each, down to a six-year deal and $200 million. This is the type of deal that wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for a starting pitcher who's north of 30. That's the type of deal that an elite shortstop in Carlos Correa uh, ends up signing. Six years, $200 million. Let's call it what it is. Yes, there's vesting options on the back end of it, but six years, $200 million guaranteed. So how bad were the reports stemming from these physical examinations from the Giants and from the Mets? And did the Twins want to consult with that same doctor? Or did the Twins simply, you know, did they trust their own medical staff? Were they aware of this? And were they aware of a deal around, you know, six or seven years for $200 million? That's what they were comfortable with giving because they they had this prior knowledge. Who knows? But very interesting storyline. Um, probably, uh, you know, maybe outside of Aaron Judge never actually hitting free agency and, and everything that, um, that went on with those contract negotiations between Judge and the Yankees early in free agency. Um, this is, you know, this is probably, if not the biggest story of free agency, and I think that this might, you know, this might shape negotiations going forward. I think it'll change the way that agents like Scott Boris present information uh, to teams regarding medicals. Um, Scott Boris usually doesn't present medicals, maybe for this reason. Um, I think it changes the way that teams negotiate with players that, you know, maybe they have a history of injuries. Not saying that Carlos Correa does or doesn't. He's certainly hit, uh, you know, the uh, injured list, um, not the disabled list, the injured list. Uh, you know, a few times over the course of his, his career. But it's going to be interesting if, if these big spending teams, like, like the Mets, Dodgers, Red Sox, Yankees, you can even throw the Padres into that situation now. You throw the Phillies uh, into that category now. Um, is it going to incentivize maybe these teams to use this as a negotiating tactic? Okay, let's put some stupid mega deal, 10 plus years, 300 plus million dollars. Let's put it on the table. Let's get them out here for a physical. Let's find something in that physical. Let's buy ourselves a week or two of exclusive negotiations to really nitpick on this physical and say, oh, we, we, we just don't like this one thing about this player. We're worried about this one particular impingement, you know, cropping back up in eight or nine years down the road up toward the end of this contract. So 
you know what, instead of an 11 year deal, uh, we're only going to give you a, a seven year deal. You know, we're going to get rid of those last four years and, and uh, you know, oh, you still want those last four years. Okay. Uh, well, we're going to build in some protection for us then. We're going to put some vesting options in there and make sure that you stay on the field. Is it a tactic? I don't know. Was it proactive or was it reactive? I don't know. We'll never know. But I think it's something that the MLB Players Association being the strongest players association in the sport, I think that they need to get a handle on it. Um, anyway, that's Carlos Correa to the Twins. It's interesting. I don't think that we're going to hear the end of it. Um, I hope he has a very long and healthy career. I do hope that he wears some more beanballs in the middle of the back because of what he did with Houston uh, in 2017 in the run-up uh, to the World Series. Um that year, but certainly don't, don't you know wish injury upon him. But uh, maybe maybe some bruises along the way uh, as he stays uh, in the American League. But either way, the other interesting um, storyline that really flew under the radar that I think is is a huge storyline. Um, no one was really talking about this. It was a little blip. It was a notification on my phone. Um, I think from Bleacher Report and then from ESPN, and all that it said was that in AAA. In 2023, um, they're going to use robo umpires for calls and strikes. Uh, didn't really go into specifics about if it's the TrackMan system that is installed now in every single ballpark. I think all the way down through Double A, um, if not, you know, all throughout affiliated baseball. I know that a lot of High A and Low A affiliates have it now. Um, I know that a lot of uh, facilities use it um, on their backfields uh, and, of course, their main field in spring training. Um, even uh, a lot of independent baseball teams are beginning to use TrackMan technology. Uh, colleges, um, especially you know high-level D1 programs, are using TrackMan technology. Basically, what TrackMan is, it's, it's a system, it's a radar system that triangulates, um, and I believe there's a camera component too, it triangulates where the ball is on the baseball field during all phases of play. So from the moment it leaves the pitcher's hand, the ball's being tracked. The spin rate's being tracked. The velocity's obviously being tracked. The directional spin's being tracked. When it gets to the bat and it leaves the bat, the exit velocity off of the bat's being tracked. The trajectory's being tracked. Uh, the top spin or the back spin off of the bat is being tracked. Um, the impact that the wind or the atmosphere has on the actual carry of the ball versus the projected carry of the ball, that's being tracked. Uh, the route that the outfielder would take to run and get to that ball, that's being tracked. Uh, that player is being tracked specifically. Was his route efficient? Did he get a good jump? Was he late on his jump? All these things are being tracked in real time and and spit out you know, as just... So in just a quick example, in my line of work, we have flight scope, which is basically track man in a box. It doesn't it doesn't do all the same things, but the data that it spits out, it's it's gigabytes worth over the course of a season in in CSV spreadsheets. And if you look at it, you know you got your x-axis and your y-axis, and there's 26 or 27 different categories, something like that, that it measures on every single pitch and every single ball in play. It's incredible. TrackMan does even more than that. So the data that exists um, is is prevalent. And it's pretty damn accurate. And it looks like that's going to be the system that they're going to use in AAA to track balls and strikes. And it's an incredibly accurate system when you can triangulate anywhere on a baseball diamond uh, where the baseball is. Of course, you'll be able to tell, did it cross the plate or not? Was it above the hitter's knees? 
and below his chest or not. Was it a strike or not? That's what we're trying to decide. Rob Manfred is trying to remove the human element, you know, of the strike zone. Um, we've already pretty much removed the human element from, from plays on the base pads. We can go to video review. We've never been able to review balls and strikes. The MLB Players Association, one of the strongest unions in sports. The MLB Umpires Association is also one of the strongest unions in sports. These guys love their jobs. They'll tell you about it. Uh, trust me. Um, but taking away balls and strikes from them, like that's that's their whole identity. When an umpire is behind the plate on every single pitch, you can debate as a fan, was that a ball or was that a strike? Now we can't debate that anymore. So are we adding to the integrity of the game? Yeah, we probably are. You know, you want strikes to be called strikes and you want balls to be called balls and you want your favorite hitter to have a chance and not get screwed on a punch out or something, you know, along those lines. But I think that you're removing an element of the game that is extremely entertaining. If you have an umpire back there that is just the shits and he's been blowing it all night, it's fun to get on him as a fan. Even if you're watching from home, if your team gets blown out eight to one, it gives you an excuse. You can always blame the umpire. It's kind of like, you know, they're almost like a non-playable character in a video game. They're there for a reason. They add the ambiance. You know, do they really make a difference in the end? No, they're not supposed to. It's not an umpire's job to make a difference. Quite the opposite. A good umpire, you should never notice. That's what we always say in the baseball injury or uh, industry. You should never, ever notice a good umpire because he's doing his job. He's not biased one way or another. He's not pissing you off as a fan, and he's not giving you a reason to cheer for what he's doing. He's just doing his job. should never notice. Now, now we're really never going to notice umpires calling balls and strikes because they're not going to be there. There's still going to be an umpire behind the plate, but he's not going to be, he's, he's going to be relaying balls and strikes, not calling. It's not going to be his eyes and his mind that make that decision. It's going to be a beep in his ear or whatever system they go with, and he'll relay it. So visually, yes, might look the same to us, but for those playing the game, it's going to be incredibly different. And good pitchers can, can, can utilize and take advantage of a consistent umpire, but an umpire that's consistent one way or another. You know, Greg Maddox was always able to, to know exactly down to the inch how much he could get away with at the bottom of the strike zone with certain umpires and really, you know, how much he could let his sinker run down and in and still get a strike call on a ball that a hitter would never be able to hit anyway. But depending on where that particular umpire lined up to look, maybe there's an extra two, three inches there at the bottom of the strike zone that a guy like Greg Maddox is good enough to exploit time after time. That's where I think TrackMan has a place in our game. Outside of all the cool data and the analytics and everything that a team uses to evaluate a player, as a fan, I think that before we just say, oh, you know, guess what? TrackMan's going to call balls and strikes now. I think that we should introduce TrackMan more and more. It's a tool for umpires. Umpires love it. When umpires come through and they umpire games at Palm Springs Stadium, they love the feedback that the flight scope system gives them because they're unsure. They're unsure on more pitches than they would probably ever admit. And they admit to more pitches than you would ever imagine that they were unsure. Just put it that way. So they see a lot of pitches. It's hard to keep focus, especially if it's hot, especially if it's cold. You know, there's all these other factors, especially if he's not feeling well that day, you know, maybe he's hung over. Um, it's hard to keep your focus for, you know, 
250 to 300 pitches, 400 pitches, however many there is, you know, over the course of a major league baseball game. And of course, this is still at the AAA level. We're not saying that it's going to be implemented next year at the major league level, but that's kind of the trend. Things that are implemented in the minor leagues, especially the high minor leagues like AAA, they're going to find their way to the major league level, um, usually within a season or two. Uh, we saw that with video replay. Uh, we're, we're going to see that with eliminating the shift next year at the major league level. They've already done that at the minor league level. Uh, we, we've seen some crazy shit in the Atlantic League, uh, which is, of course, independent of the minor league ladder, but they still get funding from Major League Baseball. They work very closely with Major League Baseball to implement rule changes that MLB may be exploring. Crazy shit, like being able to steal first base. Wild pitch, run to first base. Okay. Um, moving the mound back. Okay. You know, we're doing all these things because we want to speed up the game, right? Why would you move the mound back and make it harder for the pitcher? Just because pitchers are throwing harder than ever before? Well, that's how you get a fast baseball game. Throw it by them. You know, I. so that, that was a weird one. Obviously, I don't think that we're moving the mound back or stealing first base in Major League Baseball anytime soon. But when you have something like automating balls and strikes that's been talked about for several years and is possible now at a very, very accurate level with the technology that we have in systems like TrackMan, when you see it implemented at the AAA level, that's significant. I think it's coming very quickly for Major League Baseball. I have mixed feelings about it because I really appreciate the accuracy of it. Um, and it's it's interesting when you introduce technology into a, in, into any sport. But baseball, for being such a traditional sport, probably the most traditional sport outside of soccer, uh, when you just look at how long it's been around and how simple it is to play in many different forms all over the world, and the amount of technology that baseball now has compared to any other sport. You know, maybe football, American football, is, is, is the only other sport that utilizes as much technology as Major League Baseball does. But the NFL does it to cover the game or to talk about the game. They do it with instant replay. I think they were the first North American League to do it with instant replay. But in the NFL, everything happens so fast. And it's so hard to see what's happening at ground level for a referee who's, you know, five, six yards away. So of course it makes sense to implement it in the NFL, especially when everybody has an HGTV at home and they can see obviously that that pass hit the ground before it was caught or that that, that wide receiver's you know foot stepped down out of bounds or that the goal didn't cross the goal line. We, we have to get these things right in football. In baseball, okay, we implement instant replay on the base pass. Fine. There's a lot of bang-bang plays. In baseball, there's probably more bang-bang plays um, than there are, you know, than there are uh, in the NFL, where you can really look at football, um, or yeah, look at replay in in football. But replay in baseball has slowed the game down. We were talking again about speeding the game up. The game's too long. Need to speed it up. You know, got to get under that that two and a half hour mark, which at this point isn't going to happen. But that's always the goal. How do we get closer to that two and a half hour mark? But you don't do it by going to instant replay as much as they do and taking as long as they do. So before we fuck with the strike zone, I think, you know, let's, let's utilize umpires in a different way. Let's have the call already made before we have to go get the headset and talk to the booth. And you know, that, that whole exchange umpires don't move fast. They're not fast people at all. They're very slow, very sloth, like very methodical. 
And let's let's try and clean up some of that that will actually speed the game up instead of just throwing technology at a perceived problem. Hasn't been a problem for a hundred years in Major League Baseball. Or how about this? How about we figure out what a check swing actually is? Because the Giants were in the playoffs a couple of years ago and they got rung up on a check swing um, that that really looked like, you know, it was it was nowhere or it, sorry, it wasn't a swing, even though it looked like a swing. The check swing call is still entirely up to the interpretation of the umpire. There's no, there's no rule that says, oh, if the bat crosses the front plane of home plate, that's a that's a myth. That's a it's it's a good point of reference, but it's not a rule. The rule is literally in the umpire's opinion, was it a swing or not? That's the whole rule. So let's clean up things like that and let's get the game a little more consistent and let's work on speeding it up along the way before we just, you know, throw shit at a problem like eliminating the shift and, you know, taking the human element away from the strike zone. I appreciate the effort. You want to improve the integrity of the game. But at this point, I think it's a little bit too much. We'll see how it goes in AAA. They've tried it um, at different levels of the minors and independent league baseball. So this isn't the first time that, that uh, you know, leagues have, have, have done this at the direction of Major League Baseball. But it's the first time that we're going to see it in AAA and uh, I think, you know, I was surprised that that there wasn't a lot of or um, a lot more coverage uh, with this because this could lead to a pretty significant change um, in Major League Baseball if we see it implemented at, at the Major League level down the road. So umpires, I would have to imagine that they hate it. Um, they want a lot of control. Uh, you know, we, we certainly see that, um, you know, we see spirited umpires. Uh, you do not question the strike zone. That is, in a lot of umpires' minds, that's an automatic ejection if you if you question balls and strikes. Currently, MLB is okay with that. Um, but we'll see going forward. It's going to be difficult to tell all these umpires that take pride in their strike zone, well, all the hard work that you've done over your career as an umpire to get to the major league level, we're just going to take that away from you. And it's going to be replaced. And you're you're going to be a glorified scoreboard back there, you know, raising your arm for a strike when you hear a beep in your, in your ear. Or however they're going to do it. So if I'm an umpire... I'm probably a little bit pissed off because I have to stand back there and watch a game that's too long already and just relay information to the crowd that they can see on the scoreboard anyway. Um, or maybe I'm happy about it. Maybe I'm thinking, shit, I can make the same salary. I can stay back here. I don't have to focus on every single pitch. I don't have to worry about, you know, sweat dripping into my eyes when it's 103 in Texas. I don't have to worry about, you know, shivering, uh, you know, in, in, early April when it's 43 degrees up in Detroit and I can just, you know, sit back here. I don't have to worry about balls and strikes. I can focus on plays at the plate. I can focus on what, you know, the other umpires are doing. I can focus on my movements. Maybe that's the approach. Somehow I don't think so. So anyway, a couple of things to watch um, heading into the major league season. We certainly will begin to ramp up with more major league baseball talk, more baseball talk in general. Um, as we, uh, you know, flip the calendar here to February in a couple weeks, pitchers and catchers report to spring training in mid February as is tradition. Uh, and then we have spring training getting into full swing, uh, with games beginning, uh, at the end of February. So, um, interesting football, unfortunately is coming to an end. College season is, has, uh, has wrapped up with kind of a dud of a national championship game. NFL, I think that we still got some some mega, absolutely mega playoff games ahead of us here. Um, and of course, coming up uh, 
to the uh, to the start of the second half of the National Hockey League season. A lot of interesting storylines that Alex and I will get in um, with the NHL. Formula One starting back up um, in uh, in early March. Um, so lots of interesting things. Um, so please uh, do stick with us. Um, thank you for sticking with me here tonight, the one man show. Um, I apologize if you know it's boring, ran on, whatever. It's awkward for some have done this, but like I said, uh, Alex he'll be back with us um, hopefully next week um, if he's feeling better and you know if his uh, busy schedule allows. Uh, Ryan Noonan was indeed fired into the sun, um, but uh, is uh, is slated to come off of IR uh, and and join us uh, hopefully back next week as well. So with that. I'm Justin Reschke for absolutely nobody else. Um, we'll see you next week. This has been the Suspended Indefinitely podcast. Tell both of your friends. Goodbye.